0: On the 23rd of June 2020, the New York Times published an article called How to Rename a Street.
1: Choose the street carefully. Roadways with few or no addresses, like highways, are the easiest to rename.
0: The article was written in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. this year, as activists and ordinary citizens fought injustice inside their buildings and on the streets. Here's producer Zaina Duidor reading from this article.
1: Changing street names cannot fix injustice, but don't underestimate its
0: power either. So while we all know the names of our streets... The name of
2: the street I live on is Gneiststrasse.
0: Oh, okay. Kitasuri Road.
2: Well, my street is a number, so it's not very exciting. It's called Autoskonts.
0: How many of us actually know the meanings behind those names? Absolutely not, no. I have no idea,
3: actually. I could ask. That's a really good question.
0: (laughs) Do you know what your street name means? When it was put up? By whom? And how much do these names even matter? Ask who and what the
4: street names around you commemorate.
1: But why do we have street names in the first place? This is producer Zainan Idar.
4: Well, there's there's obvious points about navigation, just being able to find each other.
1: This is Deirdre Mask, and she's the author of a book called The Address Book.
4: The Address Book, what street addresses reveal about identity, race, wealth, and power.
1: I talked to her to understand why we should have street names in the first place.
4: And in a lot of ways, this, you know, having named streets and house numbers builds community because you can find each other easily. You know, not just people you know, but people who don't know you. It sort of fosters a sense of community in an area.
1: It also makes it easier to do practical things in our everyday lives.
4: You know, it makes it easier to vote. It makes it easier to get bank accounts. It makes it easier to get credit. And it makes it easier to access, you know, other aspects of life and community around the world.
1: But street names don't just help us practically. They shape the neighborhoods around them as well. Street names become part of the language of a city, Alderman says, and then they become part of the psyche of the people.
0: Obviously, the act of naming something — a building, a bridge, a street — it's a commemoration of something. It's a commemoration of some history. But whose history? And so today, we wanted to look a little closer at the places we live, the streets around us, and the stories they're holding up to us every day as we walk or drive along them. We have two stories for you about two different streets, uh, one in Tehran and one in Khartoum, thousands of kilometers apart from each other, but they share a depth of history unknown to most. And their stories are pretty fascinating. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. And one story that always
5: kind of
3: captures my imagination is the, the streets lost
0: culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Here's Zaina starting with the story about a small street in Tehran called Bobby Sands Street.
1: So we're not actually starting the story in Tehran. The story instead starts in Belfast in the 80s.
0: At the
6: beginning of the 1980s, Ireland was plunged into political turmoil.
2: Northern Ireland was now experiencing rioting on a scale not seen for many years.
4: God, last place, I oh my
5: God.
3: Appeals went out to thousands of people, packing the cemetery to stay down and calm down. More grenades were more... thrown.
1: Let me give you some context. Are you Zena? Yes, I'm Zena.
7: a to meet you, Zena.
1: This is Danny Morrison.
7: I am almost 68 years of age and I have been involved in republicanism and in the struggle against British rule in Ireland. From my mid-teens. And I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with politics in Ireland, but our country was partitioned against the wishes of the majority of the people by the British almost 100 years ago.
2: We've grown used to the idea of getting out nowadays but in 1922, when British troops left Athlone and handed over to the IRA, it was a less familiar experience.
7: Uh, So in the south of Ireland, which is today called the Republic of Ireland, is largely uh, independent. It's a member of the European
2: Union. This was the end for the British troops and their hated auxiliaries, the black and tans, of the fight against Sinn Féin.
4: So, you know, you have the United Kingdom, which includes the island of Britain, which is England, Wales and Scotland, but it also includes the very top bit of Ireland.
1: Many Northern Irish people feel as though they should be part of the independent country of Ireland and not under British rule.
7: We were subjugated and made second-class citizens in our own country.
4: We will say to Mother England, you have forfeited any right you ever claimed. To govern any part of this country, we'll drive you to the boat, Mother England.
1: And so, being a Republican meant fighting for the unification of Ireland. But the reason we're talking to Danny about Irish history is because of one man. Bobby
6: Sands.
7: Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands was a very, very ordinary guy. Bobby Sands was on the
1: Bobby Sands. I only knew Bobby Sands up until he was like 17. To be honest, I never
5: thought he would end up as he did.
3: I mean,
6: it shocked me.
1: Danny and Bobby met at a very unlikely place. Prison.
7: He was moving past our cage one night in the dark, him and... Several hundred other prisoners were being shifted from one camp to another and I met him at the fence.
1: And what was he like as a person? Like, what was his character like or his disposition?
7: Uh, Well, first of all, he was quite, he could be quite humorous, but he was also quite serious and he was one of the most determined people I had ever come across. When you were in his company, you knew that you were in the presence of someone special.
1: During what was known as the Troubles, which was a 30-year period of conflict between Northern Ireland and the British over the identity of Northern Ireland, many activists and protesters were thrown into prisons by the British government to try and deter others from following suit.
7: I ask those who will quite sincerely consider the use of internment powers as evil to answer honestly this question. Is it more of an evil than to allow the perpetrators of these outrages to remain at liberty.
1: When Bobby was 27, he had already spent over one-third of his life in prison for charges such as firearms possession. During his time in prison, Bobby became officer commanding of the IRA prisoners, which was the political party he and Danny were a part of. And they organized a series of protests to protect their rights as political prisoners.
3: The familiar blanket man leads another demonstration in support of the IRA hunger strikers.
1: Although Republicans had for years been treated like political prisoners, or prisoners of war, which meant exemptions from wearing prison uniforms or doing prison work, for instance, this special status was revoked in 1976, as the British government sought to squash the movement.
7: They were badly beaten for over four and a half years, held in solitary confinement. At one stage, illegally put on a bread and water diet. Uh, they were regularly hosed down and they lived in horrific conditions. So Bobby uh, and his comrades went on hunger strike. A
4: Republican prisoner at the Mays prison in Northern Ireland refused
7: breakfast this morning and says he will fast to the death to achieve his aim of political status.
6: What followed was not only an intense battle of wits between the British government and the IRA, but a bitter fight to the end. We have a saying in my country that if all the political prisoners of the world were free,
2: and of all those who put them in jail, were
7: in jail. We have a decent world. Well, we led it. He was the first person on the 1st of March, 1981. And uh, I visited him maybe 19 times uh, prior to the hunger strike. And you know, he was quite determined. Do
1: you think if he does
6: go into a coma, you would give the authorization for him to be intravenously fed? No, he told me not to. It's a sad thing to say, and I'd feel I love my son, just like any other mother does. But uh, I wouldn't.
1: I can't. They asked me not to, and I promised not to. Days passed, and then weeks, and the hunger strikers quickly began gaining international attention.
5: A stunt
7: for the uh, publicity that he would get out of it, that everybody comes running. Not only the Human Rights Commission, but uh, every uh, American crank that's possible. I am to say, his own life was, I didn't think your life was worth that. uh, But he was very determined and I got the impression he was fully resigned to die. So, for example, even the Pope sent his secretary over to talk to Bobby Sands to ask him to end it. And Bobby said, look, you shouldn't be talking to me. Talk to Mrs. Thatcher. Mrs. Thatcher's line on the hunger strike was emphatic from the start. In other words, there is no political justification for murder. You can have a blanket protest, you can have a dirty protest, you can go on hunger strike if you want to kill yourselves. That's up
3: to you. But there is nothing that's going to move me on the question that murder is murder is murder, as she once put it. In that sense, what you have from the government at the start is. A-
1: After 66 days...
3: In the last hour, the news has filtered through to this community. Bobby
1: Sands was the first hunger striker to die.
7: Bobby Sands is dead. The 27-year-old member of the Irish Republican Army who went on a protest hunger strike 66 days ago has died.
1: Bobby's story went global. Thousands of people across the world resonated with his story.
7: Reaction from abroad to his death has ranged from concern of its possible effects in Northern Ireland to criticism of Britain.
1: Especially in Iran. To learn more about this, I spoke with Ronnie Close.
3: Yeah, hi.
1: Ronnie's a professor of visual media at the American University in Cairo.
3: And I've been researching for my PhD, actually, 10 years ago, the connections between Irish Republicanism and Iranian politics.
1: At the time, Iran was going through its own turmoil.
3: For the last seven days, Tehran and other cities have seen violent clashes
4: between troops and demonstrators demanding Khomeini's return.
1: The Iranian revolution was in 1979, and in 1980, Iraq invaded Iran. But what connected Bobby Sands' struggle with Iran?
4: I'm not so much sure if they cared so much about the reunification of Ireland, but I think the Iranians shared, many Iranians at least, shared a common enemy with Bobby Sands, which was the British.
1: The British and their American allies had a heavy hand in Iranian affairs particularly in the years leading up to the Iranian revolution in 1979, which established Iran as an Islamic republic.
3: So I think some of the appeal was that it was anti, you know, he was seen as a symbol of anti-colonialism, anti-British rule. It was, a, it was an irritant to the British uh, legacy in Tehran.
1: But there's another reason many Iranians connected so closely to Bobby's death.
3: Because of that war with Iraq, a lot of their ability to respond was actually true, quite, quite horrific sort of martyrdom.
1: With many casualties in the war, religious leaders broadened the definition of a martyr in order to get more men to join the cause against Iraq. They announced that all fatalities of the war were to be considered martyrs for the country and therefore for Islam. As such, martyrdom became very prominent in the war with Iranians organising human wave attacks against the Iraqis.
3: Yeah, I mean, there was almost like, you could say, almost like a cult or an institution of martyrdom in Iran.
1: So for many Iranians, Bobby was a martyr too.
3: And also another, more much more official connection, actually, between the government and uh, republicanism was that the... Uh,
1: Ronnie told, told me that one day, Sweden, in July 1981, the- the Iranian ambassador to Sweden gifted the Irish delegation a woodcut plaque.
3: But it has an image of like Bobby Sands' face, but then these kind of crucified figures, you know, in the background. It's quite a. And it does say, you know, from the Ayatollah Khomeini to, you know, the martyr Bobby Sands.
1: Despite all this, Ronnie was still surprised to hear a rumor around the streets of Belfast one about a street named after Bobby in Tehran.
3: I was. You know, I think I'd heard it, but I just had no idea whether it was true or not. So,
6: we
1: went exploring.
6: I have to say, lots of uh, cameras around. So, it's gotta be quiet. Hard to get the ambient before I get into any trouble.
1: This is Naveed, an audio producer in Tehran. I asked him to go to the neighborhood and check out the street.
6: Just about to turn into Fan Street. And we're now on Bobby Sands. It's uh, it's quite a busy street, lots of cars. One side is uh, the wall of embassy.
3: Not sure which embassy it is.
1: Ronnie knew exactly which embassy it was.
3: One side of the street is taken up with the British embassy. So it's the wall of, it's, I mean, get myself into trouble, but it's a kind of typical British embassy from that time. It's big, <laughs> you know, so they, they not only have a building, but they have gardens. They, so it's, it's more like a block that they, they have, you know?
1: Like a compound, basically, for it's, the embassy. It's a,
3: it's a compound.
7: Because, of course, the British government likes to leave evidence of its stay and its occupation in countries all over the world. In Tehran, the British Embassy's address was Winston Churchill Avenue.
1: Calling the street Winston Churchill Avenue was quite a powerful move from the British many years before. By the way, Winston Churchill was one of the most famous prime ministers in the UK, governing at the height of the British Empire from 1940 to 45, and again from 1951 to 55. Churchill was actually in power when the British organized a coup to overthrow the Iranian government in 1953. But back to the story about how it became Bobby Sand Street.
4: Yeah, so um, I I speak of the story about Bobby Sand Street in Tehran. Um, And I read a book um, and a story told by a man called Pedram Moalelium. I might be pronouncing his name not quite properly, but Pedram. And um, it was a very interesting story about he says that when he was a kid, really, um, he and some friends decided to unofficially rename the street after Bobby Sands, after um, Bobby Sands died. Um, And uh, it was a street near a friend's house.
1: Deirdre Um, spoke to Pedram, the Iranian who as a teen had changed the the street name. We reached out to him for the story multiple times, but in the end, he didn't respond. With
4: it. I think they had some other ideas of trying to commemorate Bobby Sands, like, you know, find an Irish flag. But as he said, if there was a place to find an Irish flag in Tehran at that time, he didn't know where it was. And they had all sorts of other ideas. But in the end, they decided that the street naming would be a powerful symbolic response. And so they were literally able to, to make, he was quite good at art and graphic design, was able to make a mock-up of the sign. And
7: so they unscrewed the name Winston Churchill Avenue, and they renamed it Bobby Sands Street.
6: Yes, I can see the sign Bobby Sands Street. Both in uh, The sign is both in Farsi
7: and obviously in English. And the British government uh, were very angry. They uh, thought that they could order Tehran to take that down and put back Winston Churchill Avenue. But the local authority recognized the street officially as Bobby Sands' street. And it's very interesting what the British government did next. So rather than receive mail, they bricked up the entrance to the street and knocked a hole in the wall leading on to another street so that they wouldn't have Bobby Sands mentioned in their address because, of course, Bobby Sands was haunting them.
1: I asked Naveed whether he knew why it was called Bobby Sand Street.
6: <laughs> yes, uh, I, I mean, I had no idea, but I guess people that are around the, the area, they, they pretty much, out of, I think I interviewed one, two, three, f- maybe four people, three of them completely knew what it was. <laughs> what he said is that uh, so Bobby Sands apparently was uh, an Irish revolutionary who was against the British Empire and after the revolution because Iran uh, relationship with uh, England wasn't in a, in a good uh, position. So that's why they named the street Bobby Sands as, again, a sort of like a jab to them.
7: (laughs) Interestingly, a few years ago, I discovered that Jack Straw...
1: He used to be the UK's foreign secretary.
7: He was secretly uh, lobbying the, the Tehran government, the Iranian government, sorry, to change the name back to Winston Churchill Avenue. So I launched an international petition and we received scores of thousands of uh, people who signed the petition calling upon uh, Tehran not to change the name, and the street remains Bobby Sands' street. In Milton's only graveyard the man lies at rest Our own Bobby Sands, the bravest and best Our heroes
1: Today, the street remains Bobby Sands Street. There's even a Bobby Sands burger joint in Tehran. Interestingly enough, Tehran is not the only place you'll find streets named after Bobby Sands. There's one in New York, a Bobby Sands way in Connecticut, and a couple more around the world. We'll be back after the break. Many times, street name changes happen out of protest or petition, rather than in the dead of the night. Don't be afraid to take your appeal to a larger stage, which may involve protests, marches, and boycotts. This second story is more recent, One that's actually happening as we speak. And just like in Tehran, it's about a name that's more than just a name. It's about a group of people battling a name put in place centuries ago. One that memorializes a very controversial character in Sudanese history. And it's making locals ask questions about which parts of history we should keep and which we shouldn't.
4: These arguments about street names are often about more than street names, right? It's not just what the street name is it, it's called. It's about what, what we you know, what we value as society and what, what we feel. So, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, let's just get rid of this argument. Let's just number all the streets or something. And as I say in the book, you know, these arguments sort of divide communities. They also create communities. So perhaps in thinking about how to change these street names, you're also sort of identifying what your values are.
1: And, funnily enough, the street in question houses a very important building we've come across before. The British Embassy. I want to put in like some Union Jack, like, do 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 I think it would be so funny. Place names often reinforce colonialist narratives, erase Indigenous history, and inscribe privilege onto the landscape. So, who is Zubair Bashar?
5: Yeah, Zubair Rahman Mansour, he's one of the slave traders uh, in the 19th century. He's, he's very famous for being a slave trader.
1: This is Hafiz Muhammad Ibrahim, and he's the director of Justice Africa, an NGO focused on social justice and human rights. Hafiz is campaigning to change the name of one of the historic streets in central Khartoum, Zubair Besha Street. Zubair Rahim Mansoor, or Zubair Bashar as we'll refer to him, was a merchant in Sudan in the mid-1800s. To learn more about him and the history of Sudan at the time, I called up an old friend of mine, Aida.
8: Hi, my name is Aida Bashar. I'm based in Nairobi. I'm Sudanese. I'm a social policy research officer, and my research primarily focuses on Sudan and the current transitional period.
1: I asked Aida to fill me in on who Zubair was.
8: Okay, so in order to talk about Zviya Pasha, you also have to talk about slavery in Sudan, kind of the history of slavery in Sudan. And slavery in Sudan can be traced back to ancient Nubian and Egyptian times. Um, The history of slavery in ancient Egypt is well known.
1: But as thousands of years passed, Sudanese people were still being captured as slaves and sent to Egypt. For most of the 19th century, the slave population of Egypt was between 20,000 and 30,000, out of a total population of five million. Every significant town in Egypt had a slave market, the largest of which was Wakelet al-Galeba, which was a Sudanese merchant's roadside inn in central Cairo.
8: Um, Muhammad Ali Pasha, the Ottoman ruler, began raiding South Sudan in an attempt to build up an army of southern Sudanese slaves. Um, and the people who helped him were Nubian slavers.
1: This wasn't just recruiting people to join an army. Instead, it was a very systematic way of raiding villages
8: in order to, to get these slaves. It was very much planned, and that's where Zubair Pasha comes in.
5: He used to work with the Turkish and also the Egyptian, in actually uh, apprehending people from South Sudan and the Nuba Mountain and send them as a slave to Egypt and other parts of Sudan.
1: It seemed pretty clear to me that Zubair was a terrible person, but this is where it gets tricky. Because for many Sudanese, Zubair Basha wasn't a villain at all. In fact, he's seen as a
5: hero. The problem is in in the in, in the history textbooks which uh, students study in the is different in primary school and others, they consider him
2: as one of the heroes. On the one hand, he said he never owned a slave and he never had anything to do with the slave trade. On the other hand, he was the king of slave traders.
1: This is Zachary Berman.
2: And that's what makes it a little schizophrenic almost to, to try to follow the narrative and, and
1: yet, I asked Zach to help it, me understand why Zuber was seen as a even, hero if I he mean, was so terrible slave, he was, was well suited for that generation. because he's a high school teacher
2: I teach high school I teach global history in ninth and 10th grade at Stuyvesant High School in New York and
1: Zach I, also uh, wrote his PhD thesis you. on Zubair Besha.
2: and I get and I, and I do get to talk about my dissertation with my students they do they do appreciate it.
8: Could we sort of go back a bit and how did this slave trading happen? You know,
1: did he just fall into it? Like, how how does one become a a king of slave traders?
2: I think you very much fall into it, especially because his family had been traders and this was sort of the Wild West where you went to seek your fortune. And I, I think we really need to say that this was not nothing like the slave or transatlantic plantation slavery. This was slavery of... Um, people who largely were sold to to pay off taxes, their families owed taxes, they didn't have any money, so they had to sell children. Um, And by selling them, they were promised they'd have a great job.
1: And so even though at some point he had a personal army made up of captives from South Sudan, he also captured parts of land in the name of Sudan. And so in the eyes of many Sudanese, he was a conqueror in the name of their country. His life and his legacy have actually left him many supporters in Sudan.
5: And even uh, just a couple of months ago, there is a full a program in one of the Sudanese televisions about about him as the hero, one of the heroes of Sudanese uh, histories.
1: Completely erasing the problematic issues of his slaver past.
5: And have never seen a textbook which consider slave trade as a shame or something which we have to regret. They never do that. And I think that is the problem. I think we have to de-link our presence with this very shameful history.
1: Zubair Basha Street is in the more historic center of Khartoum, covering almost 20 blocks of the city center. There's two university campuses on the street, mosques, a church, several banks, and tons of restaurants. It's a bustling street, only a few blocks away from the Blue Nile River. But that's not all. The street's location is reflective of the city's colonial urban design. Khartoum was planned by Herbert Kitchener, when an Anglo-Egyptian army took back control over Sudan in 1898.
7: We've got Khartoum. It's just
2: come through. Kitchener broke the dervishes' army at Omdurman. Good, good. Splint.
1: Kitchener was a military engineer, and previous battles in Khartoum had torn it to the ground, giving him free reign to rebuild the city. And past naming many streets after British names and legacies, Kitchener did something much more permanent.
8: He chose to lay out the city to resemble the Union Jack.
1: The Union Jack that's on the British flag. He literally made Khartoum look like a bunch of Union Jacks if you were
8: looking at it from above. But something else you do see in Khartoum's center is that many of the street names um, were chosen as a physical reminder of victories of the British and Egyptian armies.
1: And so having the name of a prominent slaver who helped supply Egypt's army with Sudanese slaves, which ultimately were then used to fight their countrymen as a street name on roads that resembled the Union Jack... It's more than a little problematic, especially because of what's on the street itself.
8: It's known as the street where the British embassy is situated. So if you ever want to get a visa to go to the UK, um, you'll be at Zubair Pasha Street.
1: This is even worse when you think about the British relationship with Zubair. That's how Zach got into researching him in the first place.
2: And so I spent a few hours looking at British parliamentary records for the the months leading up to the Matas Revolt, and it was overwhelmingly about this guy named Zubair and people and they're yelling back and forth about the, the Zubair is, is is our only hope and Zubair is this evil and he's he's our only hope and he's evil and he's our only hope and he's evil
1: their relationship with Zubair was long and complicated while the british wanted to stop slavery in Sudan and so hated Zubair for his part in continuing the trade they also deeply respected him So much so that at one point, the British were fully considering instating Zubair as the new ruler of Sudan in order to bring Sudan back under their control. When the British retook Sudan after the Mahdist Revolution and set up the Anglo-Egyptian condominium, he became an advisor to the government.
2: And after he dies, the day after he died, the British administrator said he might have done more to eliminate the slave trade than anyone.
1: Changing the street name is now more important than ever for Hafez, for a much bigger reason. After months of protests starting December 2018, a 39-month transitionary period was signed in September 2019 in Sudan. Since then, Sudanese people have gone to the streets protesting a range of issues, which sparked discussions on corruption, justice, the rights of political prisoners, the economy, women's rights, and importantly rethinking relations with South Sudan and combating racism in Sudanese communities.
5: We want to change the culture, the mindset of the people who believe that there are some Sudanese are slaves. I think this is still there and what we, by doing that I think we want to change that. We want to change the perception, we want to change the mindset, we want to tell people that Sudanese are equal, no one is a slave and no one is master. I think that is what we want to do.
8: I think that's where street names really matter. Um, Because for a lot of people, if you only have a surface level understanding of what the street is or where it's located or how it's set up, then the street name, whatever it is, doesn't really matter. But once you incorporate the history and the the other intricacies that come into play, that's when I think it matters. And I think those are the type of discussions that need to be had in Sudan.
1: Although the campaign to change the name of the street from Zubair Besha has been delayed because of COVID-19, Hafiz is hoping to set up a petition which they can deliver to the government in order to ask them to change the name of the street.
5: We're hoping that by educating people uh, and telling them exactly what's wrong and what's right in our history, that we'll change Sudan and we'll end conflict. And then Sudanese can live together, recognizing each other, recognizing the diversity. By that, we will end uh, conflict and then the country will move forward.
4: Um, and, you know, and there have been more sort of more modern, you know, philosophers who talk about how, you know, revolutions often start with changes in street names. There's a geographer named Don Mitchell, who I was speaking to, who, made a, who makes this great point that, you know, if you're an invader, then you can physically take space. But if you're a revolutionary, you have to take the space from the inside. Um, and so taking the space from the inside, you already have it. What do you do with it? And, and part of it is that you can rename it. So, so changing the names to reflect your ideology can be a, a powerful tool in, in a revolutionary's toolkit i suppose
1: the next time you're out on a walk or a drive look around you look out for street signs marking dates honoring names or establishing narratives notice the hidden curriculum that runs through place names you'll never know what you'll uncover right outside your front door toponyms reflect points of view which can be changed
0: This episode was produced by Zaina Dugidor with editorial support from Alex Atak, Nadine Shekhar, and Dana Balut. Editing by Dana Balut and sound design by Zaina Duguidor, Alex Atak, and mixing by Mohamed Khayzat. The article Zaina reads throughout this episode is called How to Rename a Street. It's by Malia Wolin from the New York Times.
1: Thank you to Deirdre Mask, whose book, The Address Book What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power really shaped and inspired this story. Thank you to Ronnie Close, Danny Morrison, Aida Abashar, Zachary Berman, and Hafiz Ibrahim for taking the time to speak to me for this story. You can keep up with Hafiz's work on the Justice Africa Sudan page. Thank you to Naveed, who provided great tape from Tehran. Thank you also to Todd Rees, author of Showpiece City, How Architecture Made Dubai, and Susanna F. Molina, founder of The Urban Activist, for speaking to me for this story. This year also marks the 40th anniversary of the hunger strikes at Longcash, which Bobby
0: organized. If you're loving Kerning Cultures, please be sure to tell your friends about us. In addition to this show, we have seven other fabulous, if I do say so, podcasts in Arabic and in English. Everything from love stories to thriller fiction adventures. Just Google the Kerning Cultures Network and you'll see the whole list. If you're experiencing Casey withdrawal from each episode to the next, be sure to follow us on social at Kerning Cultures. We do our best to fill the feed with cool factoids you'll want to share with your friends and some behind the scenes of us as a team. We'll be back next week with a new story for you. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
1: Choose the street carefully. Roadways with few or no addresses, like highways, are the easiest to rename. Oh, <laughs> I hate recording so much. <laughs> okay, <let's... laughs> During what was known as the Troubles, which was a 30-year period... Oh, oh 30. I sound so American. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It just comes out of my mouth this way. <laughs> but what connected Bobby Sands' struggle with Iran? No, that was really bad. So we went exploring. Oh, so we went exploring. It's such a weird line. I feel like I'm in a comic book. Okay. He was the former UK's former foreign... Oh, sorry. I read that wrong. (laughs) I said former like three times. I was like former, former, former. Okay.